Section 27 of The Catholic's Ready Answer This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Rev. M. P. Hill Section 27 Darwin A Misapprehension Darwin was the incorporated ideal of a man of science, Huxley, as quoted by President Sherman. Darwin was not a Christian, and the weight of his authority must help considerably to tip the balance in favour of unbelief. The truth about Darwin, the incorporated ideal of a man of science, the phrase is not a happy one, but it is probably meant to convey the idea that Darwin realised to the fullest the ideal of a man of science. We are not in the least disposed to underrate the real achievements of Darwin, but, as his fame rests chiefly on his theory of natural selection, and as that theory does not now seem likely to prove an adequate explanation of the development of the species, the halo about Darwin's head has lost much of its luster. In natural selection, Darwin lighted upon what seemed to him a bright idea, and the idea was striking enough to arouse the enthusiasm of a generation. But it was too sweeping and too imperfectly supported by evidence to be permanently regarded as a key to one of nature's great secrets. Natural selection is regarded today by leading scientists as a factor in the evolution of species, but not as the dominant one. Darwin started the scientists on the path of research, but put them on the wrong scent. Consequently, men of science are now seen retracing their steps in the endeavour to regain the highway of true scientific progress. See Evolution. In the present article we are chiefly concerned with Darwin's personal mentality, a study of which will prove highly instructive. Charles Robert Darwin was born at Shrewsbury in England, February the 12th, 1809. He made his higher studies at Edinburgh and Cambridge. From 1831 to 1836, he held the post of naturalist on Her Majesty's ship the Beagle during a government surveying voyage. These years marked the beginning of his labours in the collecting of specimens and in the study of facts upon which he afterwards based his evolutionary theory. In 1842, he entered upon a life of retirement and scientific labour, which finally issued in the theory of natural selection. His thoughts on the subject were, however, a matter of private speculation, and would perhaps not have been published so soon had he not been aware that another investigator, Alfred Russell Wallace, was on the same trail. This determined him to make the results of his researches public. It is gratifying to know that Darwin and Wallace published the theory of natural selection conjointly, in essays read before the Linnean Society, July the 1st, 1858. In 1859, appeared from Darwin's pen, The Origin of Species, a book which in some important matters revolutionised the study of nature and gave the theory of natural selection an ascendancy which it retained for several decades. Among evolutionists of the present day, there is a growing tendency to reject natural selection as a full and adequate explanation of facts. Whatever may be said of Darwin as an evolutionist, it would be a grievous mistake 
to attribute to him the character of a philosopher, and especially to regard him as a man of large philosophical outlook or of a keen logical acumen. He himself disclaimed the possession of any such qualities, with a humility, by the way, which is not a little to his credit, and there is nothing in his life which indicates their presence. The following extracts from his life and letters edited by his son, Francis Darwin, will illustrate some of his intellectual peculiarities, and at the same time, we may add, prove that he was far from being of the class of rampant atheists, who so often appeal to his name and authority. I feel, says Darwin, in some degree unwilling to express myself publicly on religious subjects, as I do not feel that I have thought deeply enough to justify any publicity. Volume 1, page 304 I have never systematically thought much on religion in relation to science or on morals in relation to society. Ibid, page 305 whether the argument from causality for the existence of God is an argument of great value, I have never been able to decide. I am aware that if we admit a first cause, the mind still craves to know whence it came and how it arose. Ibid, page 306 The last sentence furnishes the best possible portrait of one side of Darwin's mentality. His mind is so deeply imbued with the notion that everything that exists must have been produced by something else, that when his reason brings him to the first, absolutely first, cause, in a series of causes and effects, he fails to see that the first cause would not be the first if it could spring from any other, or, not to press dialectics with what may seem to be over-severity, he fails to see that when the mind reaches an absolutely first cause, it is brought into contemplation of a being who is necessarily self-existent and eternal. Now this being is precisely the God whom we Christians adore, but it must be admitted that Darwin's mind oscillated on this subject in response to sound logic on the one side and a deep-seated evolutionary bias on the other. In the following extracts from The Life, we would call special attention to the sentences we have italicised. When thus reflecting on the argument from design, I feel compelled to look to a first cause having an intelligent mind in some degree analogous to that of man, and I deserve to be called a theist. This conclusion was strong in my mind about the time, as far as I can remember, when I wrote The Origin of Species, and it is since that time that it has very gradually, with many fluctuations, become weaker, but then arises the doubt can the mind of man, which has, as I fully believe, been developed from a mind as low as that possessed by the lowest animals, be trusted when it draws such grand conclusions? Page 313 I have no practice in abstract reasoning, and may be all astray. Nevertheless, you have expressed my inward conviction, though far more vividly and clearly than I could have done that the universe is not the result of chance. But then with me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the conviction of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value, or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind, if there are any convictions in such a mind? 
page 316. Open-eyed wonder is the feeling which the reader doubtless shares with the writer in lighting on these unexpected traces of the mind of Charles Robert Darwin. Here we have the extraordinary spectacle of a man who arrives, by the use of his reason, at the verge of the eternal and the infinite, and gets a glimpse of the divine perfections, when, lo, in a moment all is changed. It is all an illusion. How can an ape know God? If at such critical moments of his life Darwin had been able to steady his wits and reason thus, my mind has reached beyond the bounds of sense and caught a sight of the eternal first cause. Therefore my mind could never have been evolved from the mind of an ape, or, if he had been consistent enough to transfer his intellectual fears to another object, the very evolution theory on which he was working and had asked himself, can the mind of man, which was once the mind of an ape, be trusted when it draws such grand conclusions about the origin of species? He would have escaped the state of utter confusion that settled upon his mind in regard to the real, ultimate origin of species. No, Darwin was not a philosopher. Even as a naturalist, he reached distinction by reason of these three facts. One, he made a brilliant guess, but the thing guessed was, after all, not the real truth. Two, he was a prodigious delver for data on which to build conclusions. Three, he succeeded in correlating the data to some extent, though he was obliged to leave it to some comprehensive intelligence or intelligences, to make a synthesis of the myriad particulars. It is in no unfeeling spirit that we have exhibited the uncultivated side of Darwin's intellect. We do so in order to supply one notable illustration of a fact, which in the past two or three generations has forced itself upon the notice of observing men, to wit, the partial mental paralysis exhibited by many men of science who have never undergone a rigid training in mental philosophy. A second object we have had in view is to show how in the case of Darwin, as representing a class, his spiritual powers, as President Sherman says of them, were atrophied by his absorbing preoccupation with the phenomena of the natural world, and like the domestic duck, whose wings, he tells us, have become shrunken and useless from disuse, the pinions of his own soul, disabled for want of exercise, refused to soar above the solid ground of nature's familiar scenes and occurrences. Huxley and Scientific Agnosticism, page 76. End of section 27. Recording by Florence.